0: The following audio is from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. On uh, Sunday, January 8th, 1956, deep in the South, African, uh, South American jungle of Ecuador, five men landed in a small plane along a lonely river. These five men had moved there, all of them in their late 20s or early 30s. They had moved to uh, South America with their families. In the belief that God had called them to reach a people group there known as the Woadani. You see, the Woadani um, were people that were known for their brutal savagery. In fact, anyone who had ever tried to approach the Woadani had been killed. Killing was a value in their culture, yet these five young men knew the truth that in Revelation 7-9 that every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will gather at the throne of Jesus Christ and worship Him. And they knew that there'd be people there from the Woadani tribe. So for three years, they planned. They prayed. They strategized about how they could reach this people group with the gospel. And as they landed that morning and got off their plane, they were greeted by some Woodani men who promptly speared them, killing all five men. These men were, were discovered, and the national news in the United States picked it up, and they began to report in the newspapers and in the magazines and the media what an evil, tragic event this was. How this made no sense, these five men who had so much before them, so much life to live. These five men who had wives that were left as widows now, who had children who were left without fathers, and the world looked at this and said, this is an evil that could have been avoided. Yet our God has a way of taking that which is evil... And evil is dark, evil is real, I don't want to minimize evil in any way, but God, in His sovereignty, in His omniscience, in His all-knowing, He takes that which is evil and turns it for our good and for His glory. You see, one of these men who died, his wife, his name was Jim Elliot. his wife Elizabeth Elliot. her and another man, who had died, his sister named Rachel Saint, the two of them met a young Wawadani girl who had escaped from the tribe with her life. And she came to them, and they began to learn the language from her. And about two years later, Elizabeth Elliot went back to the very same people who had killed her son, I mean her husband, with her daughter and with Rachel Saint, and the three of them walked into the Woadani village in hopes that they would be merciful to a group of women. And over time, one woadani trusted Christ, then another, then another. And this evil was turned for good. And this people that was known primarily for violence and for murder became known for bringing the gospel of peace. God transformed these people. And Rachel Saint, she would spend the rest of her life living there among the Woodani impressing the gospel in upon that culture. In fact, Nate Saint's son, Nate Saint was the pilot who flew the plane in on that day. His son would be baptized in the very river where his father died by the very man who had speared his father to death and had trusted in Jesus and was a new creation. This story would inspire literally thousands of young people to move to the mission field all over the world. Our God. He takes that which seemingly makes no sense. That which we look at and we say that is an evil. It doesn't make sense. It's hurtful, suffering, pain involved. And God, in His sovereignty, takes it and works it for good of those who love Him. Well, for those of you I don't know, my name is Steve Winstead. It's a joy to be here with you on this Labor Day weekend. And we are continuing on in a series that we started a few weeks ago in the book of Exodus. And what we're seeing today is that God is going to raise up a deliverer. God's people have been in slavery and in bondage to the most evil man that we've seen in Scripture so far, a man named Pharaoh. Pharaoh is cruel, and he sees that the Israelites have started to grow. You see, the Israelite people, they moved to Egypt over 400 years before the events that we're looking at. And when they moved to Egypt, there were only 70 of them. There were 12 brothers with their families and they moved there, see me, a small group of people and they were a blessing just as God had promised that Israel would be a blessing wherever they went. They were a blessing to the land of Egypt and Egypt began to flourish. Over that 400 years, they grew from 70 and 70 brothers and 12 brothers to 12 tribes totaling about 2 million people in number. And when as they grew, Pharaoh began to fear them and put them in slavery. And he figured, if I can squeeze them out, I've got to shrink their numbers. They're getting too strong. So he began to enforce harsh labor upon them. When that didn't work, Pharaoh said, but we'll kill all the baby boys. And he orders the midwives to kill the boys when they're born. And the midwives defy Pharaoh and don't do that. And then a third time Pharaoh says, I must, increase, must decrease their numbers. And orders all the baby boys thrown into the river to a certain death. This Pharaoh, what he has done, he's so twisted that he is calling that which is pure evil, he's looking at it as being good. Killing these babies, he thinks it'll be for the good of their nation. He has become hardened and darkened. And what we're going to see this morning is that truth that Kenna mentioned lived out. This scriptural promise in Romans 8.28, it'll be on the screen for you. That we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That God takes these things that we look at evil. Evil's real. It's dark, there's some of you I look at and I go, I do not understand how God could ever use that for good, and I don't think I'm going to see it this side of eternity. But we can trust the promise that for those who love God, He works things together for the good of those who love Him. Well, let's start, if you've got your Bibles, we're in Exodus, the second book in your Bible. Exodus chapter 2, and what we're going to look at today is that God's people, they've been in slavery for 400 years, and today we're going to watch God raise up a deliverer, but here's what we're going to see. We're going to see two stories, and in these two stories, we're going to see evil looks like it's going to prevail, and God's going to take it and turn it on its head and use it for good. Sometimes God allows us to see how he takes the suffering, the pain, the evil in our life and uses them for good. Sometimes we won't see him this side of eternity, but here we get to see two stories of exactly how God does that. And what's interesting, one of them, the man Moses, does nothing to bring about, and God uses it for good. The other Moses hand is very much involved with. Moses brings the evil about, he's engaged in the evil, and God still takes it and turns it for good. Let's start reading in verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Now, for us, we quickly read over that. But for a Hebrew reading this, there were 12 brothers that came there, and they've become 12 tribes, and one of the tribes is the tribe of Levi. And for any Jewish person reading this, when they hear Levi, it's synonymous with this idea of worship, because they'll become the tribe of worship. And here's why that's significant. Moses is born into the tribe that one day will be known as the tribe of worship because his purpose is to lead God's people to freedom to worship God Almighty. That's what God's raised him up to. Lead his people to freedom to worship him. And notice also he's not born to another tribe named Judah. Again, there's 12 tribes. One of the tribes Judah, and we see in the book of Genesis, that from Judah will come The ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ. So we know that this guy, right off the bat, he's not going to be the ultimate deliverer. He's not the Messiah. Verse 2. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. This mother takes an enormous risk. She has an older son named Aaron, an older daughter named Miriam, and if it was discovered that she was hiding a baby boy, her entire family would be killed. But Hebrews 11 gives us insight as to what's going on. Look at this, Hebrews 11, 23. um, We got it coming? There we go. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Do you see what moves Moses' mother? It's faith. By faith, she hides the child. And every one of us, we're, our, most of our motivations either come from faith or from fear. She was not afraid of the king's edict. You see, fear is a powerful motivator. Fear is what motivated Pharaoh to order all the babies thrown into the Nile River. We have plenty that we can be afraid of. Just turn on the news. And you'll see things like terrorism and ISIS. And, and in our fear, some people will think we've got to get ready and be prepared because something bad's going to be happening. We can turn on the news and watch about the election and look and go, man, this thing's out of control. There's nobody, nobody that cares a thing about God's gonna be elected. Our nation's going crazy, and out of fear we can react. We can turn on the news and be afraid of the violence we see on the streets and the racial tensions we can see fear just even within our home of are we going to be secure we can have fear of how are our children going to turn out and parent out of fear but God's people are marked by faith not by fear Fears not to be what runs our life. We're to be motivated by faith, trusting that even though I can't see how God is going to take this thing and turn it for good, I can trust that He will. Even though I can't figure out how God is going to take having a president that cares nothing about himself and use it for good, God can. And I don't have to know how He's going to do that. I can trust and have faith that God will do what He says He's going to do. And here, she has faith. She trusts. And she hides this baby and... In verse three, it says, "When she could hide him no longer, she took for him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank." So she technically here, she technically does what Pharaoh is commanded her to do; she puts the baby in the river. Only she does so with a with a little bit of a twist. She puts him in a basket. Now again, for the Hebrew reading this, they would pick up a Hebrew word here for basket. It's tabah. There's only one place in the Old Testament that that Hebrew word tabah is used outside of this story. And that is in the story of Noah and the ark. God called Noah to build a tabah, an ark, a basket to save his people. And he covers it with pitch. And God God takes Noah and his family Who have to trust God enough to get on this ark, trust that He will bring them through the chaotic waters to the other side as their hope of deliverance. And here, she takes Moses and puts him on a basket, puts him in a basket, and has to trust God to take him through the chaotic waters to the other side. See, that's even what baptism is a picture of. Baptism, we have to trust God enough. That will enter into the chaotic waters, trusting. It's a picture that we trust God enough that He will bring us through, deliver us to the other side, that we are safe and secure with Him. And she trusts God and puts this baby in a basket. Now in verse 4, it says, And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done. So here is uh, this little girl, most likely Miriam. She's watching to see what will happen. And in verse uh, 5, it says, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women wa- uh, walked beside her, she saw the basket among the reeves and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? and Pharaoh's daughter said to her go so the girl went and called the child's mother and Pharaoh's daughter said to her take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages for the woman and so the woman took the child and nursed him now this passage here it's full of irony what we're going to see is God's going to take this evil. As is, is Moses floats down the river, it appears that all hope is lost, that this evil is going to prevail, but God is going to take it and turn it on its head and use it for good. You see, if God uh, had not used Pharaoh's daughter, Moses wouldn't have made it. She's going to join the list of women that have been used to protect Moses. Moses. God raises up these women, and by faith, they step out and they save the life of Moses. And what's interesting, in God's providence, he takes someone from in Pharaoh's very own house and uses them to raise up Moses on Pharaoh's own dime. So Pharaoh's daughter joins the list of these women. Last week we saw Shiprah and Puah, these two uh, midwives who refused to kill the babies. If they hadn't refused, Moses wouldn't have made it. And then we saw Moses' mother. She steps out in faith and hides him. If she hadn't done it, Moses wouldn't have made it. And then we see Moses' mother place him on the river by faith, trusting in God. If she hadn't done that, Moses would not have survived. And we see Moses' sister watches to make sure the crocodiles in the dangerous waters do not overtake the baby in the basket. And then we see Pharaoh's daughter notice and the young women go and get her and Pharaoh's daughter opens up the basket and takes pity and compassion on the crying baby. God works this step by step by step out exactly like He wants it though it seems like evil will prevail. God is working it together for good. Now, Who else but Pharaoh's daughter could have convinced this hard-hearted, cruel, evil Pharaoh to allow one Hebrew baby to live? Think about it. Here is this cruel, hard-hearted Pharaoh who will order a genocide upon an entire generation, yet the one person that can find a soft spot in that hardened heart is his daughter. Seems to me like daughters have a special place in their father's heart. I've got all boys, so I don't personally get to experience that. But when I talk to my friends who have girls, it's it's tough for them to say no to their little girls. I was here, uh, we, we had a movie night uh, about a month ago here at the church, and I was in the back talking to a friend of mine, and his little daughter comes walking up, and she's this cute little two- or three-year-old girl, and she says, Daddy, can I have some candy? The dad's like, sure, you know, go get some candy over there. Well, she goes and gets in, about two minutes later, she's back asking for more candy, and the dad says, sure, go get it. She does this about four or five times. Come in every time and asking for candy, and and before you start to think this dad's doing a bad job, he knows that she's just sort of, she's building like this candy empire over there on her mat, and she's got all this, she's not eating any of it, she's just stockpiling it. I, I remember thinking, how hard is it to say no to that little girl? How how can a father say no to their little girl? And the one person that can get through the heart of this hard-hearted Pharaoh is his daughter. And that's the very person that God has Moses' land before. God is working these things together for good. And unknowingly, Pharaoh's own treasury will raise up the very boy that will be his undoing. Moses is going to be educated in the ways of Egypt. Moses will understand Egyptian language, Egyptian culture, Egyptian heritage, Egyptian business, Egyptian styles, the inner operation of Egyptian life. Moses will understand better than any Hebrew person alive. God is shaping him right there in the house of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is paying Moses' own mother to nurse him. Pharaoh's paying for Moses' education. God is raising him up in his sovereignty to do this. Now, when we hear this story, we often take our pain, sufferings, the evils that we uh, encounter in life, and we sort of put ourselves in Moses' situation. God's going to work it out just the way we hope He will, just like we want. Well, know this. One baby boy survived a genocide. Thousands of mothers and thousands of fathers went and threw their baby in the river. Thousands of mothers and fathers were broken hearted watching, knowing that their namesake, that their child was dying. Thousands of, little, of big brothers and big sisters watched their little brother die. This is a, a tragic, evil, hurtful, painful thing. But yet God in the midst of it saves one and will raise him up to be the one who delivers the nation. So here's what we see, Pharaoh orders a genocide on all baby boys. A purely evil thing. And as Moses floats away, it seems like God's plan is thwarted, but God has raised has Moses raised in Pharaoh's house in order to prepare him for a good. Here's the point. It'll be on the screen. God hears his people's pain. God hears your pain. God hears his people's pain, and he remembers his promise to work all things for the good uh, of those who love him, even though things may look out of control. God hears, and he remembers, and he'll work them for good. God is working even in the midst of chaos for good. Look at verse 10. It says, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So Moses is adopted into the house of Pharaoh. He'll be raised as a grandson of Pharaoh. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This name is significant. She drew him out of the water, but the name also is a prophecy of what he's going to do. Moses will draw the Israelites out through the water to worship God. And God is working here in this naming of this child even, over all the details. Even this Egyptian name he gets, Moses, is significant. In verse 11, it says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Acts chapter 7 verse 23 tells us that Moses is now 40 years old. Forty years have passed and the question is, is Moses going to identify with his high and lofty position? Moses has been raised in the house of Pharaoh. He most certainly would have been one of the highest ranking uh, officials in Egypt. He has everything he could ever want in this world as far as worldly living goes. He's in a powerful position with wealth, prestige, honor, education. He's got all those things. Is he going to identify and live out of that, or is he going to identify with the people that he was born to, this lowly people, the Hebrew people, who are caught in slavery? In verse 12, He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses sees a troubles between the Hebrews and the Egyptians, and he steps in and tries to handle it himself. In his own arrogance, in his own uh, self-sufficiency, he tries to take care of a large problem, and he kills a man. Actually, the word used here is the same word. Uh, the word for beating this man is the same word that is used for beating the Israelites. Moses literally beats this man to death. It's a brutal, violent thing that Moses does. And notice he knows it's an act of sin. He looks this way. He looks that way. He's making sure nobody sees what he's about to do. And then once he kills the man, he buries him, hoping no one will know what he's done. He hides his sin. And that's what sin and evil always lead us to. We want to hide it. No one will see it. Clear the Internet history. Keep, uh, tell a half-truth. Change the numbers. Do whatever we can to keep our sin hidden and buried. And look in verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. Moses comes and sees two Hebrews fighting. And they ask him, who made you prince and judge? The very roles that God will call Moses to. To be the prince over the nation and to be the judge over the nation. Yet he's not ready yet. He's operating out of his own willful arrogance, his own sufficiency. And God has to shape and mold this man and transform him. And notice, Moses worked so hard to hide his sin. He tried to bury it. Our sin is never hidden. God is all-knowing. He knows our sinful hearts, our sinful ways, the evils that are in our life. He knows those things. And if he needs to expose those to bring you closer to him and to use you for his will, he'll expose them. He'll take them public. And that's exactly what he does with Moses. He takes his sin And it becomes known. Everybody knows what he has done. In verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. This is the second time that we see Pharaoh try to kill Moses. He tried to kill him as a baby. Now he's going to try to kill him as an adult. Moses has left the high position of Egypt and has stepped down with the Hebrew people. And notice... He tries to solve the very things that God has called him to solve. The difference between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. But God is raising him up for something much bigger than one Egyptian and one Hebrew. He's going to solve the difference between the most powerful nation on earth, Egypt, and between these two million Hebrew people. He's going to step in and fix their problems. He's going to deliver them. That's what God has called him to. And also, he'll mediate not just between two Hebrews... He'll mediate between the Hebrew nation, which is comprised of millions of people who are fighting and bickering, and he'll step in and serve as judge. God is preparing this man for something much larger. And God has to shape him. God has to break him. God has to take him low to the point that Moses will say, I can't do it, God. And God will say, the only way you can do it is with me, and I'll be with you. I'll speak for you. I'll send you your brother to speak for you. Halfway through verse 15. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Moses, when his sin is discovered, he runs away. He goes to Midian. Now, Midian is the cousin of the Israelites. Abraham is the father of the Israelite nation. He had another son by his second wife, Keturah, and that was Midian. So he runs to his family relatives and he goes and sits down by a well. Now, a well was a significant place in ancient times, you needed water to live. So the entire community would gather around a a, a well and everybody would show up there. It's a place where hospitality would be uh, welcomed. And here, Moses runs to the well in verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled their troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came down and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Raoul. Now, Raul means most excellent. You're going to see Moses' father-in-law later called Jethro. That's his sort of down-home name. He said, how is it that you have come home so soon? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat. As I mentioned, the well was significant in ancient times. People would show up there and watering the flock was often the work of a woman. And these seven uh, sisters come and they're attacked by some shepherds. And this time Moses steps in. He steps in again to work out an injustice. The first time he tried to work out an injustice in an unjust, unjust way by killing a man. This time he steps in to work out an injustice And it doesn't end in death. It ends in a a better resolution. And here, the father hears about this and asks, Who is this? Why haven't you invited him to dinner? Bring him in. Notice Moses does two things. He protects and he serves. And I think when this father, Raul Jethro, when he hears this, he goes, That man has potential. That that man might make a, a good husband for one of my girls. You see, all of the people of God in Scripture, we see so many of them meet their wives at the well. We see Isaac, his wife, Rebecca, is met at the well. We see that Jacob, his wife, Rachel, is met at the well. We see that Jesus Christ, a picture of his bride, the church, is met at the well in this woman who's had five different husbands and continually runs after other gods, a picture of the bride of Christ. The well is a place where the godly often meet their brides. In fact, when I did youth ministry, we used to have a Bible study called the well. Not sure what we were thinking, but uh, interesting. A lot of folks ended up married out of that. So um, people meet at the well. And here, that's, that's what happens. Moses is about to meet his wife. But look at the characteristics. Protect and serve. He protects and he serves. One of the keys I found to, to marriage is serving well. Selflessly serving. Marriage is much more difficult when I'm consumed by myself and being selfless. And that happens a lot. And marriage gets real difficult. And when there are two people that are consumed by themselves, they start to do this. But when one person turns and begins to become more selfless and not look out for their own needs or their own desires and not tell that other person to be selfless, but they begin to become selfless, as two people begin to do that, God brings that marriage to where it's supposed to be and it honors and glorifies Him because it's a picture of the gospel. You see, Jesus said that he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's a picture of what marriage is to be. Marriage is to have that, I'm going to serve even when I don't feel like it. I'm going to serve expecting not to be served in return. I'm going to be selfless. That's much easier said than done. But that's the truth. And Moses' father-in-law sees that in Moses and says, get this boy over for dinner. And in verse 21, And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his his daughter Zipporah. So Moses gets married here. She gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Here we see Moses' attitude about Egypt. Moses says, I was a sojourner in Egypt. That's not my home. That worldly living, that's not what I was created for. And he names, his son that, he names his son after that, Gershom. And notice for the first time we hear that Moses is content. You see, we will never be content living by the values and the goals and the ambitions of this world. We are a sojourner in this world, but we don't find our life and our hope and our value in this world. This is not our home. We're only going to be content as we find rest and peace in Jesus Christ. That's the only way we're going to be content. And Moses here sits down among the people of God and he's content. He begins to find rest. He's moved out from the world of Egypt. And he begins to live a humble life as a shepherd. God shapes his people through being shepherds. We see the patriarchs, they were shepherds. David was a shepherd. Jesus is called the good shepherd. And here, Moses is going to be a shepherd. He's been in the highest of high positions now. He's in this lowly position of being a shepherd. And God is working in him. So here we've seen two stories. One where there was an evil uh, dictate by a Pharaoh and that worked out for good as God had Pharaoh raise Moses up himself. Here we see Moses kills a man. A violent, brutal act. Yet God takes that and humbles Moses and lowers Moses to the point that his arrogance and self-sufficiency is broken. And God is now preparing to use Moses to lead a nation of two million people to freedom to worship him. That's how God moves Moses to shape him. So here's our second example. Moses kills a guy, but God sends him to the desert to shape him to be a shepherd of his people. And here's our second point. God sees our sins. Moses couldn't hide what he had done. God saw it. And he knows our hearts. He knows what's going on inside our hearts. He knows our arrogance and our pride and our self sufficiency and all that's going on in our heart. And in his mercy, he humbles us. For our good and his glory. God will humble Moses for our good and for his glory. He lowers Moses. Look at verse 23. During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue for slavery came up to God. During those days... We're told in Acts that Moses spends 40 years in the desert as a shepherd. Get this, Moses will be 80 years old when he goes back to Egypt. Think about how long those people have been waiting, crying out to God, bring us a deliverer, free us God, do something. They've been crying out for slavery, they've been in it for 400 years, and now they wait 80 more for God to raise up this deliverer. See, I don't want to minimize evil and suffering and pain, but God in His sovereignty works it for good and for His glory, for our good. Sometimes you're going to see it in this life. There are things in, your li- in this life, the evils that we look at, and we'll see how God weaves them for, together for good. But there are so many, there are things I look at and I go, that is so evil. How can God ever use that for good? And we won't see until... We reach eternity, how God takes the hurts and pains and joys and weaves them together in a tapestry for our good, for his glory. And here, Moses is about to go and move to action. God is about to call this man who he's been shaping and move him to action. Pharaoh has died and there's a new Pharaoh. The people maybe hope that he would be lighter, he's not. This Pharaoh is probably like a brother to Moses. They were raised in the same household And he's now in power. And look at verse 24 and 25. God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Notice God hears. He hears what's going on. He remembers His promise. God will not forget His promises. We can rest secure in that. He sees. He knows our hearts. In the midst of the pain and suffering of life, you can rest that God knows, that He sees, that He hears, and that He remembers. When things don't make sense... When we're tempted to operate out of fear, we can move to faith. Trusting God is going to work it for good and for His glory, even though we don't see how He's going to do it. Even though in our finite minds we can't figure it out. We can rest in that. As I studied Moses' life, I found a lot of parallels. Parallels. God in his sovereignty, he makes Moses a shadow of the coming Messiah. I found over 40 parallels between Moses and Jesus Christ. I just want to give you a few that we've seen so far. Moses was born during a genocide of baby boys, just like Jesus Christ. Moses was born under an oppressive nation who were oppressing God's people, the Israelites, just like Jesus Christ. Moses had an adoptive parent, just like Jesus. Moses spent time in Egypt as a child and was called out of Egypt just like Jesus Moses left a position of power and privilege in the highest court of Pharaoh, and Jesus left a position of power and privilege with God Almighty and stepped down and took on flesh and became lowly to be with us. Moses is a shadow of coming Jesus. Moses, at one point later on, we're going to see him, and he's going to come forward. He's going to say, God, save the nation Take me in their place. Moses is going to offer himself as a sacrifice for the nation. But God will reject Moses. Moses is an unacceptable sacrifice. See, Moses killed a man, Moses was sinful. He wasn't an acceptable sacrifice, but one who's coming, a deliverer is coming who will be a acceptable sacrifice, who is a acceptable sacrifice Jesus Christ. You see Moses is the deliverer of this story here. And he's not our deliverer. He's not the ultimate deliverer. He's a shadow of the ultimate deliverer. He's a picture of the ultimate deliverer, but we trust in the ultimate deliverer. Who came who is Jesus Christ. And you see, it's in our sin, it's in the pain and suffering that reminds us that we are needy people and we need a deliverer. And until we realize that we need a deliverer, we will not cry out to God for help. And when we cry out to God for help, He will hear, He will remember. He'll see, and He'll know, and He'll remind us, I've sent the Deliverer. Trust in Him. Jesus Christ has delivered you from your sins. He will give you victory over your sin. He will wash you clean where you can stand before the Father as sinless. He will take you through the waters to the other side. We can trust in our Deliverer. So we can remember, as things appear to be falling apart, around us as it seems like evil is going to prevail as this world looks chaotic as we can't figure it out that there's a deliverer who has came to bring us into right worship with God just like Moses was going to bring the people into worship with God Jesus brought us into right worship with God and he's coming back and when he comes back he'll put an end to all evil he'll fix this whole thing And we long for the day that He returns. And some of you here today, you have most of you have probably trusted Jesus. You've trusted our Deliverer, yet oftentimes you find yourself operating more out of fear than faith. I want to invite you to hold, uh, hold tight to His promises. Even when you can't figure out how it's going to work out. Even when it doesn't make sense. Some of you here today, You've never really trusted in the deliverer. Oh, you, you may have tried to be good and work things out on your own, but you realize, I can't do it. And your sin is there to remind you that you're not good enough. You can't do it. You need to deliver who can. Well, as we take communion, we invite you to come and commune with the living God, who sent His Son as a deliverer to reconcile us to Him. That's what this is a picture of. It's open to all who believe, all who've trusted in Jesus Christ. This table is open to you, and we invite you to come and to remember that it was through the body of Jesus Christ, it was through the blood of Jesus Christ built on the cross, that we are reconciled to God through our deliverer, Jesus. tables will be open. Let's pray. God, we do thank you. Thank you for your word. It's true. It's, uh, we can stand on it, lean into it, depend on it. Lord, I thank you for your word in Exodus chapter 2 where we see these examples, Lord, these, these true real life stories where you take evil and use it for good. And Lord, I know there's many of us here who are suffering, many who are see evil around them and can't figure out how you will use it for good. Lord, will you remind them of your promise that you will do that. Though we may not see it, though we may not taste it in this life, that you will do that and we can trust. Lord, some of us will die in faith just like the Egyptians died in faith waiting for the deliverer. Some of us will die in faith trusting that you're going to work it for good. Lord, but we can die, we can live with hope. Because you have sent a deliverer who has made things right between us and you, if we'll trust that. Thank you for the tables that we can remember this sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Feel free to make copies and distribute this content, but please do not charge for those copies.